we are finishing up our fruits of the spirit. This will be the last week. There are fruits back there, so grab them while you can get them. I hope you've all enjoyed that. Um, don't, don't get too used to it, though. Uh, unless, 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 unless I get volunteers. It's not the church is too cheap to buy fruits and snacks. It's that it's one more thing added to my list, and I can't have one more thing on my list. So we did that for the fruits of the Spirit. If somebody wants to do something like that, uh, let us know. But other than that, it will be discontinued next week, so eat them up. Um, anyway, but we're finishing this week. Next week, we're going to be starting a new series. It's, um, it's tentatively titled, I may change the title before next week, Join the Revolution. We're going to be starting a series on the book of Acts. This was the greatest revolution the world has ever seen. As the Christian church became established, uh, it, it changed everything. It really did. Um, it more powerful, more impactful to the world than the Roman Empire. So uh, we're going to talk about what happened in the book of Acts. I've often said things like, hey, you know, when you look at the book of Acts, you look at the church that we see in the book of Acts, and you look at the churches we have today, it's like, man, we're not, even, we're not even the same field with it. We're not playing the same sport as those guys are playing. It was just a different, different kind of a church. And, and I believe that we need to get back to whatever they were doing that we're not. And so um, we're going to kind of study them a little bit, and we're going to look at them. And some of the stories you're going to know, and there's some stuff in Acts I'll bet you don't know unless you've read it over and over and over because there's some cool stuff that happens in the book of Acts. So we're going to be walking through that, and it'll be a lot of storytelling. So uh, kind of in my wheelhouse. Anyway, but we're going to finish up this week with uh, this idea of the fruits of the Spirit. And we're on the last one. The last fruit is self-control. Now, uh, self-control is an interesting thing because it's one of these things that if I ask people, do you have enough self-control in your life? They'd say, no, I want more, right? I think everybody does, uh, but it's weird that if everybody wants it, and the Galatians 5 tells us the Holy Spirit brings it as fruit, and when the Holy Spirit enters into your life, you get all the fruits of the Spirit. They were supposed to all be developed in your life. Um, and so if it's there and the Holy Spirit's bringing it and we all want it, why don't we see more of it in our lives? Why don't we have bumper crops as Christians in, in this area of self-control. And uh, I believe that there's a reason for that. And I think the reason for it is mainly that Christians treat self-control, and I don't think we're, we're unique in this, but tr Christians treat self-control like a gift, not like a fruit. Now, the Bible talks about fruits of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, but they're not the same thing. A gift is given to you for a purpose, but when it's given to you, it's fully mature. Now, we may have to learn how to use the gift. You know, there may be that. But the, but, the, but the thing that the Holy Spirit gives you as a gift, it's just there. If the Holy Spirit gives you the gift of healing and you pray for somebody with a withered hand, you wouldn't expect to just see the fingernail grow back. Well, I'm just not, you know, I've got to wait to get more of that. No, it, it would all come. I mean, it, when, when the Holy Spirit gives a gift, it's instant. But fruit gets grown over time. And so I think we want it, but I think we want it as a gift. We want to have it almost like a fire extinguisher in our house. When, when things get too hot, we want to be able to use it. But most of the time, we're kind of cool with the way things are. You know, just a couple things, a couple areas in our life, we'd like self-control here, maybe there. But there's, a, there's nothing really compelling about it because the reason for that is that, that self-control is something that helps us do something we don't want to do. <laughs> so by the very nature of self-control, well, we don't really want it because we want to do this stuff. You know, we want to continue sinning because we enjoy the sin. Or we don't want to do this thing because we enjoy not doing it. And, and so that's part of the reason. We want to kind of hold back on it until I really need it. And that's not how self-control works. And so we're going to walk through some, some illustrations today of how self-control works. But the Greek, just because we've been showing these and all the fruits that breaks down on this, is the virtue of one who 
masters his desires and passions, especially sensual appetites. So any kind of a, any kind of a sin in your life that you can't get control over, self-control would help on that. But it helps on the other side as well. It also helps us to do the things that we want to do that we don't seem to be able to do. So I'm going to give you an illustration here from my life. Uh, when I was about 15 years old, I was trying to learn how to play the guitar again. I tried and failed several times. Uh, those of you who know how to play guitar know what those early days of playing guitar are. It's all pain. That's what it is. You're trying to build up the strength in your hand, calluses on your finger, and some dexterity. And you just simply have to do it. Uh, we call it practicing, but it's more like exercising. You simply have to build that up before you can get to where you have to get it, or at least that's how I learned. So I had tried several times. This is actually um, not a picture of my guitar, but my guitar was just like that. Uh, I hadn't had the strings changed on it, I don't think, since Kennedy was president, because none of us knew to do that. It was just this thing sitting in a closet, and I take it out, and I'm trying to, trying to play it. Um, so I'm, I'm you know, kind of frustrated because my fingers are hurting. I'm just not getting it. And I'm in there, and my father walks in the room. I was in the living room, and he says, uh, how's it going? I said, not well. You know, it's not well. He says, how often do you do that? I said, well, according to my friends who've succeeded learning how to play the guitar, I'm supposed to do this half hour a day, every day. And uh, he says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. For every day that you spend a half hour practicing guitar, I won't smoke. My father had been a smoker since college. Now, this is like in the, in the 70s, so um, they, they were really starting to hit us hard with all these, you know, cancer will kill you things. I mean, we, we literally saw cancer movies when I was in grade school, <laughs> kind of this horror movie approach to scaring kids away from smoking. Uh, so we were all horrified that my father was still smoking, and, and we were trying to get him to quit. And he tried several times, but was never successful at doing it. You know, it's an addiction. It's hard to do. And so I thought, this is great. You know, this is a win-win. I want to learn how to play guitar. I want him to quit smoking. And that little something pushed me over the edge, and I was able to, for several weeks, every day, practice for a half of an hour, you know. Uh, I think if I hadn't, the guilt would have been over, <laughs> overwhelming, you know. So I was doing it. My father was keeping his side of the bargain, and it was working. And after a few weeks, I did develop the strength and the calluses that I needed. And then I started playing a few songs, simple songs. But at that point, guitar shifts from being a burden to kind of being enjoyable, you know. And, and, and at that point, I could announce I know how to play the guitar because I knew three songs. That's all it takes. You can announce I know how to play. Um, and about that time, my father started smoking again. But what we're both trying to do here is we're trying to get a little bit more of this thing called self-control in our lives. I wanted to use it to get over the, you know, the, the pain that I knew I had to go through to get what I wanted. Uh, he wanted to use it to quit something he didn't want to do. But that's both part of self-control. In Romans 7, um, Paul says this, uh, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. Well, I'm, I'm with you, Paul. I, I get that. For I am not practicing what I'd like to, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, then I'm agreeing with the law and confessing the law is good. Now, he's, he's actually doing a breakdown of why the law is real and why. And, and so it kind of gets into the law a little bit. Don't get lost there. But keep, I want you to keep on the thread of what he's talking about. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And then we're sins in control. Right. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, my flesh, for the willing is present, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And he finishes it by saying, but if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, then I'm no longer the one doing it. It's sin has taken over. So he's recognizing it's just like, ah, uh, I'm doing this thing and I, I can't stop. It's just 
a little thing. He says, this is a big thing. Basically, what I'm saying is sin has control over my life here, and I can't get out of that. And so, you know, it's somewhat comforting to know that Paul struggles a little bit with this very thing that we struggle with, but I have a hunch that when he's talking about that, he's talking about things at a different level than we are. You know, by the time Paul's writing the letter to Romans, and he's talking about, I'm not doing what I ought to do, it's probably just a different level. We kind of try to pull these people down on a level so we can feel good about our sin, but it's like when... Um, when Victoria and I were engaged and she was still living in, in Ukraine, my, my sister-in-law said, hey, would it be okay if I wrote to her? You know, I said, oh, that's great, you know, so she would know somebody when she got here. And they exchanged emails back and forth, you know. And uh, Victoria ended one of her emails, well, I have to go now because I have to do dishes, and boy, do I hate doing dishes, especially in winter. And, you know, my sister-in-law answered back, oh, I know, I, I hate doing dishes too, isn't it awful, right? So they were both seeming to talk about the same thing, you know. But Victoria was talking about uh, getting cold water because they didn't have hot water in the winter and heating it up because that was all she could do and going to a kitchen that had no heat because in Ukraine they would cycle who got heat that day and, you know, for hours you'd get it and, some, and they would shut off and go to somebody else. And so she was going to a cold kitchen and cold water and washing dishes by hand. My sister-in-law was bending at the waist and putting it in a machine that did it for her. You know, so on some level, they're both talking about doing dishes, but on another level, they're not. I have a hunch that Paul's kind of talking about things at a different level, but he's being gracious to us and saying, see, <laughs> I struggle too. But anyway, uh, I want to say, well, if Paul's doing it and we don't have it, where's his self-control coming from? Why, why don't we see more of it in our life? Well, I, I think one of the reasons is because we want self-control over one area or maybe two areas of our life. But God's giving us the fruit for all areas of our life. And, th and the bad news is you don't get self-control over just one thing. We, we wish we could. Hey, God, you know, this drinking thing's really out of hand. Help me with that. Give me self-control for that. That's not how God does it. That's good news and bad news. And the good news is because self-control is a fruit that grows more when it's picked more, you can grow self-control in your life by using it more. And if it's not working against that monster that's, a, you know, temptation number 10, and you've got a self-control number two, uh, what you need to do is start finding things you can use it on because it'll help grow your self-control. I'm going to show you this in, in action with a very famous story that I'm sure everybody here has heard. If you're former Catholic, you heard this in CCD class. If you're former Protestant, Sunday school or um, vacation Bible school, everybody knows the story of Joseph. They made a Broadway mu musical out of it, you know. So everybody knows this story, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you as a backdrop of self-control. Because when we meet Joseph, he has zero self-control. On a scale of 1 to 10, he's a zero. He doesn't need it because he is the favored son of a rich man. And he is basically a spoiled brat, exactly what you would expect the favored son of a rich man to be. So it starts off in Genesis 37, and Joseph was a young man, and he was taking care of the flocks with some of his brothers. Uh, and Joseph brought their father a bad report about his brother brothers. So he was out there with his brothers, and he was already favored by his father, and he sees them doing something, and so he rushes home and he tells on them, right? And this is something that's weird, but the, I've noticed this about people. Uh, sometimes they have all, every, everything given to them. They have, like, seem to have all the advantages, and it's not enough. They have to keep everybody else down. Have you know, you know people like that? They kind of do what they can to keep that person down, even though they have every advantage in the world. And I think that's what Joseph's doing, because he's already got all the advantages. He's already the favorite son of his father, and yet he rushes back because he needs to keep his brothers down in his father's um, estimation. Now, that's a dangerous thing, right, because all of his brothers, except for one, is older than him, some by several years, 
<laughs> and this is starting a process in his life that's not going to end well for him because his, his, uh, his brothers are getting slow to get angry. And it doesn't, um, doesn't help any that they saw openly their father loved them more. Now, he gives them this thing that becomes very, very famous uh, in terms of, of the story where, where his father comes and he gives them this thing called a, uh, uh, a uh, coat of many colors. You've probably seen that. And, and I always wondered about that because in, in the flannelgram that I saw in Sunday school, it looks like a bathrobe. Yeah. And in my life, I actually owned a bathrobe with all these stripes on it. And I always thought, why did he give him a bathrobe? I don't understand why that's such a big deal. But we have to look at it in context of the culture, right? This, this many-colored coat that he was given was some, symbolic because it had colors in it that only a royalty had, like purple, very, very rare. And so it cost a fortune to build this coat, and he gave it to him as, as a symbol of the fact that he loves him more than everybody else. And so when you read multicolor coat or coat of many colors, think Armani suit for like $3,000 because that's kind of more like what it is. It's a status symbol and it's supposed to make him stand out and it's supposed to show kind of a foreshadowing that this man is destined for greatness. So he gives him this, this coat. But the Bible says his brothers got to the point where they couldn't even speak to him without anger in their voice. And Joseph is completely oblivious to this. He's like, he never picks up on it at all, which is also pretty much indicative of people who are really, really spoiled. If you ever watch any of these reality TV shows or something, you'll see somebody's lived a spoiled life, they get on Survivor or something. Everybody hates them. They don't know why. I don't understand. Everybody loves me. No, <laughs> you know, you're just favorite son. So anyway, um, so then God, I, I believe God's reaching out to him. He's, he's, he's trying to, um, to, to reach him because he has a plan for Joseph. Joseph has something in him. He's got a heart that God can use in wants to use for his purposes, but it's surrounded by all this fat, and he's got to kind of lean him up a little bit, and I believe he's trying to reach him here and start showing him, I have a destiny for you, and try to bring him to him, but Joseph takes exactly the wrong approach to it. He gets this dream, this prophetic dream that's saying one day, even, even your parents and your and brothers will, will have to be uh, submitting to your authority, and the first thing he does, he rushes down and tells his brothers, hey, I had a dream, isn't this great? You guys are going to bow down to me one day. Isn't that terrific? You know, you're going to 10 guys who hate you uh, and older than you and stronger and more powerful than you and you tell them, yeah, I know that you hate me, but guess what? You're going to bow down to me. How do you like me now? You know, it's like uh, he just has no, no uh, idea. You know, brother's like, are you actually telling us this right now? I can't believe that you're telling this. And he's like, man, just pay attention a little bit here, Joseph. I mean, they're, they're, they're not happy about this. They're not happy about any of this. But Joseph has no self-control at all. He's got no work ethic. He's got no control over what he says, what he does. He just can't seem to help himself. Now, the next time we see Joseph mentioned in the Bible is a scene that's really kind of weird uh, because the entire family is out doing the family business. They're, they're shepherds. They own flocks, you know, many, many, many sheep and goats and all these things they have out. And you had to move them around to big pastures because they ate a lot. And sometimes you had to travel miles from home. You know, he had to work out agreements with neighboring lands to be able to use their pastures and things. And so the guys, you know, all, all the older brothers are out there doing their job. It's a full-time job just doing that. Everybody out is out working, except Joseph. He's like sitting on the porch. I don't know what he's doing, drawing pictures of himself in heroic poses. I'm not really sure what he's doing, writing poems or songs about himself. I'm not sure. But his father comes up and says, hey, um, Joseph, uh, aren't all your brothers out in the field with the sheep right now? Like in every abled man in the family out in the sheep right now? Hint, hint, you know? And Joseph's just drawing, eh, I don't know what they're doing, Dad. I have no idea where they are. And so he goes, okay, you know what? Um, I'm going to send you to them. And he says, okay, 
all right, I'll go. It's really funny because he like, like, like thinks about it. Okay. And so basically he's saying, why are you the only one here? Everybody else is out there. I'm going to send you to them with a message. The message was probably, please put Joseph to work. He's sitting around doing nothing. And so he goes, and so um, you're going to go out in the field. You're going to go to visit your brothers in the sheep field, miles away. It's going to be like a day's journey. And um, you're going to be surrounded by sheep, right? And that's where you are. What do you get for the trip? You know, what do you pick up? What do you go get? Well, you might grab, you know, canteen, some food, something like that. Not Joseph. He says, you know what I need? That Armani suit I have. That'll look great in the sheep field. And he goes out and he gets his coat. He puts it on him. He says, all right, they're going to love seeing this coming. Oh, boy, do they. They see that from miles away. When they see that guy coming, they say, that's it. And, it, you know, we know the story that what happens next is they take that coat off and they beat him up. They throw him in a pit and then they end up selling him into slavery where he goes. And Joseph now has to change really fast. Because Joseph went from being a favored son to a worthless slave like that. And he's going to have to adjust. He's going to have to suddenly learn how to do a lot of things he doesn't know how to do, like speak Egyptian, which he doesn't know. He's going to have to learn a language. And once he learns a language, he better learn how to talk to people right. He's got to submit to authority, which he's never had to do before in his life. He's going to have to learn how to do that. He's going to have to start organizing his day better because you only get so many days and you so many hours in a day and you better get your work done or you get beat. This is no, my father's going to cover for me anymore. So he starts developing a lot of these things in his life that he never had to do before because he has to. And God has a way of doing that. You know, he, I believe God reached out to him. He wasn't going to listen to him. He was like, I'll fix it. You know, God will fix it. And, and so he's, he's learning all these things now, and he's acing it. When, when Joseph really applied himself, he became the man God saw in him very quickly. Because he starts moving up the ranks. That's what the Bible tells us. And you don't move up in the ranks as a slave unless the people around you like you. He's learned how to deal with people. He's probably helped them out sometimes. He's shown compassion when he didn't have to. And so when he starts moving up, no one's trying to take credit for what he does. Everybody's saying, yeah, that Joseph did that. And so Potiphar quickly learns the best slave in his house is Joseph. And he may not know why, but he understands everything Joseph's touching is working. Well, that's because God is blessing his efforts. Because God is teaching him all these things. He's bringing him along because he has a plan greater than anybody can see for him, and he is nailing it, right? So um, anyway, before all this happens, of course, uh, we, we have to get him to a point where he has learned everything God has put in front of him. So fast forward now, just a couple years. Joseph is about to face two of the strongest temptations a man can face, and he's going to face them at the same time. Now this is incredible because these two temptations he's about to face he has never faced before in his life. You know, you've got a temptation, maybe you give in to all the time and you know it, you're very, very familiar with it, whatever that is, you know, <clears throat> whether it's overeating or internet porn, you know, alcoholism or just anger or whatever it is that you fight with is sin. You know it's your life, I gotta beat this, gotta beat this. You know your sin. He's about to be hit with a temptation he doesn't know. He's never seen this before. He would have had no reason to see any of this before. He's gonna be hit with a double whammy. He's gonna be hit with one which is he's going to be offered sex with a young man, 21 years old, big deal. Number two, though, is the real one I want to talk about in a minute. So we, the master Potiphar put everything he owns in Joseph's hand, and with him he didn't concern himself with anything. He's like, he, he, he learned how to be an absentee owner because, man, Joseph's run this place better than I could. And he's richer because Joseph's running everything. So he puts everything under his hand. The only thing he worried about is what he's going to eat that day. That's all he had to worry about. Man, Joseph was acing it. And Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. You know, so he's got a, 
He's, he's fit. I mean, he'd have to be, right? Because he works for a living. You know, he has to be fit. He's fit. And he's also good looking. And it came about after a while, the master's wife, Potiphar's wife, starts seeing Joseph. And she says, you know what? Potiphar's never around anymore. He's an older guy. Why don't we go to my bedroom? And so that, of course, is the first temptation. And usually that's the temptation that pastors focus on because it becomes a sermon all about you know, resisting sexual temptation. But the bigger temptation, I believe, is the fact that he's being offered something he's not allowed to have. See, the real thing is you're going to be offered the one thing in the house you're not allowed. And it's a power grab because in every other area, the house sees Joseph running things. But Potiphar held one thing back, and we see that because that's what he tells her. He says, look, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything. He's put everything in my charge. There's no one in his house greater than I, and he's withheld nothing from me except you. He knows I am second in command here. And the one thing that tells everybody he's second in command was he's not allowed to touch Potiphar's wife. But if he gets her too, now he owns the house. This, this is a temptation for what he's not allowed to have. It's not just the, the sensual nature of it. That was there too. But there's a power thing here that's very, very strong. And if you don't think it's strong, may I remind you that this is how sin entered the world to begin with. This is exactly the sin that Eve fell into. She, she was tempted to the one thing in the whole garden she wasn't allowed to have. And she was born without a sin nature. She was born perfect. Joseph had that sin nature. But his self-control by this point is so great because of all the things he's learned how to do that he just breezes through it. He goes right past the sin to what it's going to cost him and says, yeah, I'm not making that call because you're asking me to sin against God. This isn't, I'm not going to make a power grab because I know everything I have came from God. He's learned, right? He's got this self-control. So I'm not going to let this happen. He's got an iron will by this. And the thing about self-control is harvesting self-control always makes the next crop greater. But, you know, he started there with a little tiny paltry little self-control, but the Spirit was with him. And by the time he gets to this temptation, man, he has a bumper crop. And this is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to bring self-control into our life in such a way that nothing can withstand it. But for us to get there, we're going to have to start doing what Joseph did and not just start worrying about the one thing and start worrying about the many things. Self-control in any area of your life increases self-control in all areas of your life. This is good news. Because there's something in our life we want to beat that we can't, but there's something in our life that we can. And we need to start exercising our self-control over that. In James, I'm not going to time to go deep, deep into this. I, I encourage you to go read it in James 3. Um, he says, look, uh, here's something I need to tell you. If you can control your tongue, uh, you will control everything. He says, we stumble in many ways, right? But if anyone does not stumble on what he says, he's perfect. Wow, that's incredible. What he's saying is if you can control your tongue, you're perfect. You'll get all this under control if you can get under control what's, what your mouth What this is actually telling you is that's hard to do. And he goes down, he breaks it down, he tells us why it's so hard to do, and he, sh he shows, here's why, here's why it's such a big deal, because if you're not controlling your tongue, you're ruining your life. You're literally speaking curses over your life. And you're ruining your relationships around you, and you're ruining your life because you're not controlling your tongue. You need to get that under control. If you can manage that, man, you're set because it is so hard to do. So what we need to do is we need to take a page from Joseph and we need to start focusing on the things that we can do. I'm skipping through the rest of James. Like I said, I encourage you to read it because he goes down. But control over what you say 
gives you self-control over what you do. That's what James is saying. So I'm just using this as an example. Self-control begets self-control. If you don't have enough self-control in your life, here's what you need to do. God, where else do I need self-control? I'll go get that one. It's called low-hanging fruit. I'm going to pick that low-hanging fruit because that's going to strengthen it. And I'm going to start building the self-control. I'm going to start getting some victories over areas of my life. And I'm going to come back to that one again. And I'm eventually going to take it. Now, there is a lot of things about sin that's beating you and a lot of things about addiction, a lot of things about strongholds that I'm blown right by right now. Maybe I'll do a sermon just on that. But there is this idea that if you had enough self-control, you don't fall in the sin. If you're in the sin, you, know, you may need God's grace to help out. But I'm just going to focus on, the, on what you can do because God gives you self-control to use. It's a gift. And it's unlike everything else that's given to us in this fruits list because he's saying, here you go, self-control. What do you want to use it for? Want to learn how to play guitar? Self-control. Want to learn how to flamingo dance? Self-control. Want to learn how to knit? Self-control. We can use it, right? He's given us this fruit to pick and use in every area of our life. Want to read the Bible more? Self-control. Oh, you want a better prayer life? Self-control, right? He's giving us this fruit, but what we have is this little tiny pathetic anemic little self-control dying on the vine, and we're trying to pick it up and throw it at this big temptation that's overwhelming us. We need to grow the fruit. We need to grow it better in our lives. Now, I know that when I say things like this, control of what you say gives you control over what you do. I have a bunch of um, introverts in the audience, and you're all going, cool, because I never say anything to anybody. I'm an introvert. You know, I, I got that. But um, let me just remind you, this includes the things you say to yourself. Because I know you introverts because I'm married to an introvert, right? She has conversations in her head a hundred times before we have it once. It's no fair. I step in a conversation for the first time and she's on her hundredth time, right? She knows it. She knows everything I'm going to say. And she's even angry because some of the things I've said that I haven't said yet, you know? So you know, this is how introverts work. But you have to understand if you're speaking to yourself, you're still speaking. And, and just, just for the record, uh, if you're talking to yourself, and your sinful self is talking, guess what's driving the things that are being said? It's your sinful self, right? And the only voice, voice you hear is in God's voice. It's yours. So we have to get control over that as well. We have to get control of that little speak that we have inside of us. So it definitely includes the things you say for yourself. So how do we increase our self-control? So this has been a rambling sermon a little bit. We've gone in Old Testament, New Testament. I'm going to try to give us something really easy to grab onto now. This is something that you can look at, and I hope that when we're gone, everybody realizes, okay, that's what that sermon was all about. Two words, real simple. Grow up. Just grow up. You know, a lot of times we have these areas in our life because we're just not grown up enough to say, you know what, I need to deal with that. I need to deal with that. I, I remember uh, years and years and years ago when Emily was just a little toddler, uh, there was something that, you know, we were trying to teach her, and, and um, she did it. You know, I was, out in the, I was out in the living room and she did what, you know, we've been trying for some time, just on her own, you know. And I was just so proud of her. You know, I picked her up, oh, thank Emily, you're such a big girl. I'm trying to encourage her, you know. Pick her up, I want to take her back, you know, tell mom what, what happened, you know. And I got her in my arms and I'm walking back. I said, I'm so proud of you. And I heard God say to me, when am I going to get to be proud of you? When are you going to grow up? These things in your life, when are you going to grow up? And um, there's a passage in, in 1 Corinthians that probably everybody knows, but I want to spend a little bit of time on it. I want to make sure everybody has this burned in your brain because this is the thing that you need to remember over and over and over again. As you pray, as I hope you'll pray, for God to show you the areas of your life that you need control over. Some of them are so simple. You're like, well, that doesn't even matter. Yes, it does. If God is revealing it to you, it matters. 
right? So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. One of the reasons why when he's writing in Romans, he's on a different level than we are is because he became a man and he put aside childish things. So I never do this, but I'm going to do this kind of responsive reading here with you all. I want everybody to read this with me a couple times, but I want you to make it specific to you, right? Because, uh, I, and I know that may not be uh, popular today, but uh, if you're a female, <laughs> I want you to, to say, and you're, I want you to speak out loud uh, when I became a woman. And if you're a male, because we believe in those things here, uh, I want you to say, when I became a man, all right? So everybody with me right now, read it. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So I'm going to say the first part. You guys finish it for me. Ready? When I became a man, I put away childish things. That wasn't good. Let's try it again. When I became a man, right? So the next time you're facing this little thing that seems small, I want you to put that in your head. When I became a woman or when I became a man, then finish it. I put away childish things. We have to end the childishness in our lives. And we have to start using self-control over those areas of our life. And that'll give us the victories we need and grow the self-control for the harder things that we really do want to get rid of in our life. We're failing because we're not growing up. And that's, that's how it goes. And, and so I'm just going to walk through a couple examples. You probably can come up with betters, better examples and other examples. But here, let me just give you just a couple examples. Let's suppose that one of the things you want to do is, is read the Bible. I set my alarm clock. I wake up at 5.30 in the morning to read the Bible. I open up my Bible and I fall asleep. Okay? Sound familiar? Anybody? Maybe 5.30 is not familiar, but you know what that's like? Okay. Well, I'm trying and trying and trying. I can't seem to do it. I'm trying to force my way through it. I want the self-control to, even though I'm tired, to read that Bible. And my eyes just keep shutting. I'm done. I can't do it. All right, so maybe we don't want to focus on that. Maybe there's another area of your life that needs focus, like what time are you going to bed? How about, how about moving your bedtime up one half of an hour? You're an adult, right? You get to set your bedtimes. How about just move it up a half an hour? Oh, I don't know. That doesn't work for me very well. Why not? Well, then I just lie in bed and I don't sleep. Okay, well, then read the Bible. Apparently, that puts you to sleep, right? Here's what you shouldn't be doing, by the way, if you're trying to go to bed earlier and sleep. You shouldn't be reading an iPad, a laptop, or watching TV. Studies have proven that those things keep you awake. So what you do is you turn all that stuff off, phone too, and you go to bed a half hour early. And, and you know, this is funny, but um, this literally has been proven to work. If you need more help, you take a glass of warm milk and a book to bed, like grandma used to do. That's been scientifically proven to be working. And, and you lie there and you just go to bed. And you do that enough, you'll start sleeping sooner. I promise you. I promise you, you will. And th so when you start sleeping sooner, then try to get up earlier. Still not working? M move your bedtime back another half hour. There's a time at night that you can go to bed and wake up at 5.30 and feel fine. I don't know where that time is for you, but you can hit it. Well, now I have to stop watching my TV shows. Okay. When I became a man, I put away childish things. What's important in your life? Like it doesn't have to be that. It could be something else, right? I'm having problems uh, stopping eating sweet foods at night. Boy, I have this problem. My wife and I sit in bed, and it's like my last meal. I have to have it. It has to be sweet, right? Well, what's going on with that? I don't know. Pray about it. Maybe the problem isn't what I'm putting in my mouth. Maybe the problem is what's coming out of my mouth. Maybe God's saying, you know what? I need you to stop swearing like a sailor. 
Maybe I need to start getting control over that and build up that. Maybe that's an easy win for me. Maybe not. But there's all these kind of things in our lives that we're just not doing. Uh, I have a hard time. I procrastinate when I have to work to do. I, sit, I just don't do it. Look around the room. Is it messy? Clean it up. Clean your room. Keep it clean for 30 days. Give it a try. You'd be surprised what things you would look around and see all of a sudden like, well, this is easy. Are you walking out of the house with your shoes untied? Why? Tie your shoes. Grow up. How about we start exercising little easy things in our lives, things that we have easy control over, and when you start doing that and you start building these in your life, you're going to realize, I'm getting good at this control stuff. And just keep reminding yourself, well, this is going to, I don't really want to do that. Well, you know, a child would think that way. Are you grown up or not? At what point do we decide to grow up? You know, and we, we like to make fun of millennials, and we had that video at the beginning of the, of the service today. But where do you think they learned it from? Where do you think millennials came from? It's not like somebody from another planet put them on Earth. These are the children we've raised. We, we reap what we sow. And, and our parents reap what they sowed. Maybe it's time we just all just say, you know what, I know, my parents taught me this, or yeah, he gave me participation ribbons. You know, that's over now. Grow up. At what point do we say, you know what, when I was a child, I act like a child, but I'm going to grow up. I'm going to make the decision to grow up. And we start taking those areas of our life that God's pointing us, and we think that can't be important, but it is. You know how I know it is? Because God's pointing it out to you. That's how I know it's important. And we just grow up. It has nothing to do with your age. It has to do with the decision. When I became a man, I put away childish things. I want to grow up. I just need to grow up. Let me finish the story that I started earlier, and we'll, well, I'll end with this. Um, so my father, I told you, went back to smoking, and he did for several years. And on his 50th birthday, unbeknownst to any of us, he wakes up early, and he has his quiet time. You know, he's a preacher, so he always had his quiet times in the morning. Uh, while we were all still sleeping, he would get up, and he would do that. Um, and he never made a big fuss of his birthdays. Like he even said, don't, even, don't do any kind of a big thing for my 50th, I don't care. It was no big deal. I, I said the same thing, I guess I got it from my dad. My, my wife was kind of frustrated because she goes, well, I'm, I feel like we should do something special for your birthday and I don't have time to plan it. I said, I don't care. I always expected to make it to 50. You know, my 100th birthday, do something special. But 50, I kind of thought I'd hit. So don't worry about it, it's no big deal. And that's how my dad was, but apparently God thought it was enough of a big deal to bring it to his attention. So that morning he's praying and he felt like God said, you're half a century old. When do you grow up? When do you grow up? And uh, so my father went down to Sudersville, but he was a preacher in Sudersville Church down there. That's why he chose Sudersville. And there used to be a bridge in Sudersville. Some of you may remember back that far. It's an overpass now, but it used to be a bridge, a bonafide bridge. And um, this picture here was before I saw it, by the way. Uh, I never saw it look that good. When, when, when my father did this, uh, it had like one side that you could walk on, like a sidewalk, you know, and it like had wooden planks, half of them were missing. Some of you know what I'm talking about as you walked across. It was scary. You like looked down and see the Yakagini River like right below your feet. I don't know. This was an act of faith. But he went down, he parked his car. There was no trail there, by the way. There was still a railroad, active railroad there at the time. And he, um, he walked halfway out across the Sudersville Bridge. And he took his pipe, which he was smoking at the time, and his pipe pouch out of his pocket and he threw it into the Okagani River. And he quit smoking that day. I didn't even know it happened. None of us did. He just threw it in the river, walked off the bridge. I never saw him smoke again. He just 
grew up. Now, I believe God probably was working other things in his life <laughs> to make this possible. But he just, you know, I asked him about it several years later. You quit smoking. Oh, yeah, I did that on my 50th birthday. I said, really? He said, yep. Just aside, half, half a century old. Time to grow up. At some point, we just need to grow up. You know, it's true that in, in this journey we're on with the Lord of a thousand steps, he'll take 999, but we need to take that one step first. He needs us to take that step. And self-control is just a matter of growing up and saying, you know what, I'm going to do this. And then the fruit grows. And you pick it and grow stronger. And you pick it and grow stronger. And then you finally get to the point where some of the things that are beating your life don't even bother knocking at your door because you have the self-control that's ironclad. Where do we need to get this control in our lives? At what point do we say, you know what, God? I'm going to grow up. I want you to feel proud of me as my father. Would you please pray with me?